Well, look, Dad, your friend is building it. My friends, we were downtown driving around the new soccer stadium that is being built right here in St. Louis, Missouri, when my son Patrick yelled that out from the back seat of the car. Look, Dad, your friends are building it. He was referring to my friends at Keeley Companies. Keeley Companies is proud to be a part of the team that is bringing Major League Soccer to America's first soccer capital right here in St. Louis, Missouri. As construction partners of the St. Louis City Stadium, they are looking forward for this project to be a place for entertainment, camaraderie, and passion for generations to come. You can learn more about that project and look what else they're building, Dad, by visiting them right now online at KeeleyCompanies.com. Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Hello, my friends, and welcome to the Live Inspired podcast with John O'Leary. I've had the honor of interviewing hundreds and hundreds of individuals for this podcast. I love them all. And there's something about today's episode and today's guest that I find so absolutely moving and I think life-changing. You are going to love this episode. I'm saying it before I even say anything about our guest. You are going to love this episode. You're going to love this woman's heart, what she's overcome, and her life. Because today I am honored to share with you a story of not just surviving impossible odds, but thriving in a world that is too often caught up with how we look on the outside rather than how we truly are and our value on the inside. When Ketchiak Wuchi was just 16 years old, she was one of two survivors on a plane crash that killed more than 100 other people. 60 of those individuals were her classmates. She's the only one from the school to survive that plane crash. Spending months in the hospital recovering from third-degree burns that covered more than 65% of her body, Ketchy learned the power of perseverance, unrelenting faith, and music's profound ability to heal. With courage and honesty and wit, Ketchy shares her journey of healing, her fortitude, and becoming a finalist on America's Got Talent. That's right, there's a story here too and her boldness in choosing to not be defined by her scars. This conversation is going to give you hope and strength and boldness to face life's challenges directly. So my friends, let me encourage you to do this. Turn off all the other distractions, grab your favorite Live Inspired journal, open wide your heart and your mind, and get ready to truly be inspired by my friend and soon to be yours, her name is Ketchy. Ketchy, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. Thank you so much for having me, John. It's really an honor. Well, you you heard me say before we hit record, there is a long list of people who are part of your fan club, but there's only one president, and the president <laughs> is interviewing you today. So I'm a huge fan of your voice and your heart and your story and your courage and your faith. But for those who are meeting you for the very first time, maybe they bump into you in an airport or at a coffee shop or wherever it might be, and they say, Catchy, hmm, that, that, that name sounds familiar. Where, where have I heard of you before? How do you respond to that? 
So I usually um, lead with um, maybe you saw me on America's Got Talent in 2017 as a singer or in 2019, the same show, or maybe you heard about me through this plane crash that I was in where I was one of two survivors. I usually lead with both those things. Since then, I've become many other things, a published author, which is really cool to be able to say out loud. And then (laughs) a bullying prevention advocate, a burn survivor advocate, a speaker. Those are some hats that I wear with a lot of pride and confidence. And it's only the surface level of you. Ketchy, let's back all the way up. Although you've lived in Texas for a long time, that's not originally where you were born. Take us back to October 29th, 1989. Where were you born? I was born in Nigeria, which is where I'm from, to two wonderful human beings I get to call parents. I was an only child for 10 years before my little sister was born when I was 11. We grew up very middle class, very average family. You know, we didn't have much. My parents never made me feel like I was lacking anything. You know, I had a really well-rounded childhood, very happy and um, very rooted in family. They made great efforts to make sure that I was um, very close to my extended family. So my aunts, my uncles, my cousins. So I grew up around that kind of environment. It definitely helped me a lot, especially considering what was going to come up in my life. Having that family support system was so key in many ways later on in my life. So, yeah. So Ketchy, we have listeners in almost a hundred countries that tune into our podcast and Nigeria is one of them. So my Nigerian listeners, they will be bored by your answer to this one, but I'm curious. And I think our other 99 nations might be as well. What is life like growing up in Nigeria? You mentioned a little bit around family and mom and dad, and then at age 11, your sister shows up, but just generally speaking, what's it like to be a kid growing up in Nigeria? Well, for me, I would say I definitely lived a more sheltered life than you know, I don't want to say most, a lot of kids kind of live that way because at times Nigeria can be a little unsafe. It's very important if you have the ability to keep your family safe. And um, that's what my family did, you know, so I was, I would say that I was very lucky and privileged to be able to just kind of be a little more sheltered from the dangers of the world. Grew up in like a kind of suburban community in um, the East, which is where I lived. Um, I also enjoyed a lot of traveling, domestic and international, but mostly domestic. So traveling to meet my family members in other states, you you don't really get to go outside much outside of your compound. When I wasn't playing by myself, I was reading a lot, like a lot of like fiction reading. uh, I was a very avid reader as a kid. And then school in Nigeria, grades seven to 12 are all in one school. Once that that part of your life starts as a Nigerian kid, that's where you spend the next six years and your lifelong friends are going to come from like some group of people in that kind of scenario. So I went to a boarding school that was in a different state from where I lived. Why would a young girl, teenager, fly mm-hmm. off hours away to a boarding school? What's, what's the benefit of that for you and your family? The boarding schools were privately owned. And if you want a good education in Nigeria, typically you would have to go to a privately owned school. These schools were all over the country. Since there's a chance that the best school or the school you want to go to is in a different state than you, of course, it's not feasible to go back and forth every day. So these schools would typically be boarding schools. And they would typically be very closed off, like mini worlds, safe from the rest of the outside world. And that's pretty much where students spend their entire semester, and then they come home for the holidays. That was the case for me. So from 10 to 16, I was in this school called Loyola Jesuit College, and it was 
my life for the, like it was my world for the next six years, essentially. And you mentioned not only was it your life and your world, it's away from your family. So the people you're with become your family. Exactly. These are your friends. These are your loved ones. And mm-hmm. then you get to leave with these dear friends to return home for Christmas holiday. In your book, you refer to it as the day. So let's talk about December 10th, 2005. Take us back to what you remember from it. So it was a regular day that started like any other day, really. It was a Saturday. And I remember it just being very normal. You know, it's interesting because I have friends who tell me the opposite. But for me, I remember it just being very normal. You know, we woke up, we were getting ready to board the school buses to get to the airport to board the plane. And this is a routine trip for us. The school is made up of students who live all over Nigeria, you know, from different states. So a lot of us fly into Abuja, which is where the school was. So it wasn't unusual for us to be put on a plane that day. It was routine. There were 61 of us that lived in the eastern part of Nigeria that would typically travel together. Went to, got to the airport and uh, boarded our plane. It was a regular plane, regular flight. It was just a normal commercial flight. There were 109 passengers on board, including the flight crew. So in total, you know, it wasn't just 61 students from my school. It was other just regular random passengers. I remember that the fight took off and everything was normal. I was in an aisle seat next to one of my closest friends. And then the pilot makes the announcement an hour into the fight that um, we would be making our descent into the airport. And that was when the turbulence started. And I remember, again, you know, it's just turbulence. It happens when you fly. It's not a big deal. But it just started to get like worse and worse. And I remember just like feeling the tension that kept building in the cabin as it kept progressively getting worse. People were getting antsy. And I remember just sitting there, just kind of baffled. It was surreal because it's like, what is happening? It was weird because I could see myself as it was happening. I didn't even realize until later that that's probably what people would call like that out of body experience where it's like, you're watching the the chaos around you. You're watching yourself as you watch the chaos and you can't Mm -hmm. do anything about it. And it's just happening. And that was my state of mind when everything just started to go wrong. And then my friend who was in the aisle seat next to mine, I held her hand. I remember that we held hands from across the aisle. Remind me, is her name Toki? Yes. I remember us looking at each other in shock and confusion. And it was just instinctive. After we held hands, she was like, what do we do? What is this? What can we do? What's going on? It was like my lips weren't moving. I just remember saying, I don't know, maybe we should pray. Mm. Those are the last words I uttered. I don't even know if she heard me. And then it was just a scraping, jarring, metal scraping sound racking my brain. Mm. And then then darkness. It was just like a light just went off. I remember so many things in that dark, like things that I thought were dreams, but like later my mom confirmed actually happened. But I I just remember, I remember them in a dreamlike state. My, My next vivid memory is actually five weeks after. You know, I opened my eyes. I was horizontal. I was in the hospital bed. I felt completely numb. Like it felt like my body was non-existent. I couldn't feel anything, but I opened my eyes. I was lying down and I was seeing the top of like a, a hospital room, the ceiling. And I knew where I was. I knew what had happened. And the first face I saw was a nurse who was like asking me questions. And then I saw my mom. I, I heard her voice before I saw her. They told me five weeks had passed since the accident happened. And I was now in the hospital in South Africa where I was receiving treatment for intense burns. So um, that's when my life completely changed. This was life now as we knew it. 
one of the things that amazed me in listening to conversations she've had with others, but also in reading the book is that even though you weren't awake, even though your eyes were swollen shut, you do have vague memories of voices and music, even from that time you were in the medically induced coma. Mm -hmm. Talk about that. I'm, I'm, I'm amazed by it, actually. It's definitely an amazing thing to even try to explain. It was a surreal kind of feeling to be conscious inside an unconscious body was very interesting. You know, I got to paint pictures inside my mind of what I could hear, what I could sense around me and kind of build this world of what I assumed my surroundings looked like because I couldn't open my eyes. And that consciousness is what helped me when I actually woke up because since I was awake inside my head, I would hear my mom speaking to me. She would talk to me. She would pray with me, pray for me. She would um, read Bible, like scripture to me. She would tell me repeatedly what had happened because she knew I've never been great with surprises. So when I opened my eyes after five weeks had passed, I knew that's why I knew where I was because my mom had been telling me, she'd been talking to me through my coma. That was how we realized that you, know, you just really never know what's happening to a patient in a comatose state. You don't know what the person in the coma is like what they're receiving from the outside, even though their bodies cannot respond, their minds might not be that way. And that was certainly the case for me. When her voice ended, the music would start. And that made me understand that like, there was probably some kind of record player next to me that she would put on so that it could like keep me company in her absence. And then once the music stopped, that would cue like her voice one more time. So I remember like, that was how I would like keep to time. No matter how far I drifted, Something would always, my, whether it's my mom's voice or the sound of the drip, like machines around me, something would pull me back. That was such an important part of that journey because there were many times I could have just slipped away. And I didn't even realize it myself until after, you know, when they tell me things like, yeah, you had like a 30% chance of survival, or they tell me things like, you know, um, at some point, you know, the patient makes the choice to, to like, like they want to live, they make that choice and medicine can't determine that for anyone. They can do everything they can for the body, but that choice to like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to survive this. That usually is the trigger for when healing starts. I don't know what, at what point I made that decision, but I just know that my mom played a very big role in that for sure, because just hearing her voice was just so comforting and reassuring and just made me feel like, okay, I mean, I don't know what's going on, but I, I'm, I might be okay as long as I can hear her voice. We share that similarity on so many levels, as you know, our mothers are both steadfast, resolute, faithful, beautiful women who never left our side, which, yep. as you and I rec recovered separately a world apart, but from similar types of events, music. When my mother would leave my room, they would hit play on a little tape and it was usually chariots of fire. And every time I hear chariots of fire, it brings me right back to right that, back. that yeah. in between stage of, am I alive? Am I not? Am I in limbo? For burn patients, when we recover because of smoke inhalation, because of tubes dragged down our throats, because of a million different reasons, frequently our voice comes back in time, but it comes back more scratchy, a little bit different, a little bit less refined than the voice we had before we got burned. You, Catchy, for whatever reason, miraculously so, I believe, when your voice does return, it comes back brilliantly. And not only does it come back, but so does the recall of the voices you heard while you were recovering. I I'm wondering if today you might share not only your voice with us, but also one of the songs you heard while you're re recovering. This is a song while your eyes were still swollen shut, while you were in that in-between stage that a loved one would sing over you. 
Mm-hmm. It's a him, unknown writer, a him that I did not know prior to the accident. I'd never heard it before. And there was no way I could have because my mom learned it while I was in school. But I woke up from my coma knowing that song fully because my mom would sing it over me every time she came to visit me. The first line is wonderful and marvelous. And that's pretty much what the hymn has been called over time. And it goes like this. Wonderful and marvelous is Jesus to me. Sweeter than the honey in the honeycomb is he. Wonderful and marvelous is Jesus to me. Sweeter than the honey in the honeycomb is he. Jesus is real. He will never fail. I will praise him now and throughout all eternity. I will praise him now and throughout all eternity. My friends at home, go ahead and wipe your eyes. I am over here. Catchy and I are recording this in the morning, which is a difficult time for most singers to sing. And yet it's not apparently a difficult time for Catchy because that was brilliant. So thank you for doing that for us and for me. It means more than you know. Singing matters. Voice matters. Presence matters. Prayer matters. And yet still the recovery matters and the fight matters. And it's difficult. There's amputations, there's skin grafts, there's stretching, there's pain, there's itching. All these things that you and I share, including the fact that at some point we have to look in the mirror and embrace what stares back at us. Would would you share what it was like for you the, the very first time you looked in the mirror? You know, I rarely talk to hosts who can keenly understand exactly where I'm coming from when I talk about these things, you know, the scars and the itching and just, you know, you know, no one really ever understands the gravity of, you know, how difficult it can be. So um, this is definitely a very interesting, I've only had this feeling like maybe twice before now, (laughs) more than anything else, that was definitely the difficult part for me, the itching, I would say. And then to go to the time when I first saw myself, that was about four months in, at this point, I was obviously I was going to stay alive. I was no, my life was no longer hanging in the balance. I was now fully alive, going to just recover. And it was just a matter of what the quality of my life was going to be now. Around that four month mark, I started to get curious about my appearance for sure. You know, and that only happens once, you know, you are, you're out of the danger zone. You don't care about your appearance in the beginning because you're not even, you're not even thinking about that. You're literally just trying to survive and live. As you know, I got more and more, conscious of myself and more like just better in general, my mind was able to kind of afford to drift elsewhere. And it drifted down to my body. You know, I started to take note of the fact that, wow, I really must've been very badly injured because they told me it was third degree burns over 65% of my body. But now that I was looking, I could see I was literally bandaged head to foot. And I could only see like my tummy a little bit, like patches of my tummy, my arms, areas that didn't burn, which were very few. I remember just kind of being curious about what was hidden under the bandages, you know, as, as I got better, they would expose more and more parts of me, yes. but never my, like my head was always like wrapped in this like turban kind of like a bandage thing, but my face over time got exposed, you know? So I got curious and I wanted to see 
just based on my body, I could tell that I, I should not have the best expectations for my face. Also based on like the way my face itched and hurt, I just knew it was not left unscarred. So it was like, I really want to know how I look now. Like what, if my body is any indication, it's, it's not great. And if that's the case, then I need to know now so I can get used to it. So I can figure out how I'm going to navigate, you know, how bad it is. Like, you know, let me figure out how I'm going to live with this new appearance, whatever it may be. What actually triggered that interest in seeing it like full on was when I caught like tiny reflection of myself in like the front of my mom's phone after I talked to my dad. And so, so she, she brought the mirror the next day. And I remember before she showed me, she just kind of tried to reassure me and everything she said just made me understand like, yo, this is it's even worse. not yes. good yes. because she's doing everything she can to make sure I don't panic basically, you know, or freak out when I see what I have, when I have, what I have to see. So she meant well, you know, but it just, it just kind of made me more anxious. So she finally lifted the mirrors from my face. And I remember looking and turning my head like side to side, up, down. And I remember everything just kind of looked so like red and raw, you know, there was no skin, which was so weird to see my face with no skin, just stripped, you know, and then the features were there, you know, but they were just kind of not quite right. I was looking at a stranger, did not look like the catchy I remembered. Even though ironically, I did look more like my past self then than as time passed and I got better because as the keloids formed, they deformed my face even more as time passed. But in that time when I saw myself, even though I didn't look like me, in, in retrospect, I know now that I look more like me than ever. That was the closest I looked post-accident to myself. But I was still looking like a stranger. And then the more I looked, the more I realized that while a lot was different, a lot was the same too. Like the expression in my eyes, I feel like that was the main thing for me. Nothing else really. I looked into my eyes and I saw Ketchy. Mm -hmm. And I can't really explain. I can't explain it. I just know that once I realized that I felt like me and I didn't look like me at the same time, that was the first significant breakthrough for me in this entire process. Because then, you know, they were not correlated. That's what that meant. Me feeling like myself, feeling like me being catchy, identifying as catchy, clearly had nothing to do with how catchy actually looks on the outside. And that to me was a great revelation because it meant so many things, but most importantly, that I didn't have to change. I may look different. I may have been forced to change on the outside. That had I had no control over that. But I do have control over everything else about me like the things that make me laugh, you know, my, my sense of humor, my personality, the way I approach life, the way I look at life, my optimism. These were qualities that were not related to my outward appearance. And I had full control over whether or not to maintain those things. And when I saw that I felt like me, even though I didn't look like me, I had all the reason to maintain those things. I didn't have to change myself. There was just a relief in knowing that I didn't have to start acting all different because of this plane crash. You know? Yes, I know, but I, I, I can't imagine. And I, I actually experienced this and I can't imagine be, because it's, it's so personal. It's so painful to have this reckoning that who you thought you were physically, you no longer are. Mm -hmm. And yet deeper than that, you are still that incredible person you were before and you always will be. Like that, it, it, there's such a dichotomy there. And for you to be embracing this as a girl in South Africa, still wrapped in bandages with a mother holding a little mirror next to you, 
as a 16 year old, you're a baby still. It's, it, it's overwhelming. And, and it, it even gets harder. So that's your personal discovery about you, that you are still you, which is power. But then a few weeks after that, you discover the truth. About halfway through your book, there's a chapter of a title. It's the truth. Will you share with our listeners what you learned and what it meant to you? This was the phase of my journey of my treatment in South Africa, where I learned the fact that that all the other kids, all the other classmates, friends, Toke, everyone that were in the plane with me were gone. There were only two survivors. I did not, they told me this after like about maybe four or five months in. They had to make sure that I was mentally prepared to for the gravity of the, the truth, essentially. So they kept it from me until they felt I was ready. And so that's how I found out that only two people survived. I didn't know the other lady prior to the accident, though I do now. My world just kind of crumbling around me. Everything I thought I had believed up to that point was just gone. I guess perception of how things had been, thinking that I, I had gotten the worst of it. You know, since I wasn't seeing any other patients, I assumed, you know, I mean, for anyone to even survive a plane crash in the first place, it couldn't have been that bad, you know? So maybe I just got the worst of the injuries, but I just thought everyone else was okay. I felt like if they were not in this hospital, they were somewhere else, or they were like back in school. Literally, I just thought life was going on out there for everyone else. So there was also this like self-pity wrapped up in that too, where I felt like, damn, why did I have to be the one to like retain this level of injury? I'd really love to be better and go back to school and be with my friends and everything. And how were they? I wanted to know if they were okay. That was, that was the perception I had built so far. So all that just came crumbling down when I was told they were gone. And I didn't understand because I had also been in this process of learning about God and, and learning about the peace that comes with you know, knowing him and running to him when things get hard. And now I was faced with this huge question, which was like, if he's so great, why would he let 60 kids die? You know, And it was just like, I just couldn't understand. It was... Like the, the two things were just in such contrast of each other. I'm going to quote you actually, because I think uh, this is uh, something you wrestled with and something we wrestle with when we are honest about it, all of us, all of our listeners. So here's a quote from that chapter from you, Ketchy. Whatever I believed about God so far had been shattered by this fact. And now I was left sorting through the pieces, trying to make sense of them. As you sorted through the pieces, and as you wake up in 2021, still sorting through the pieces, how do you make sense of that? Where, where was God for you and for those 60 who lost their lives and for the other 40 friends who were on that flight? Where, like, where was God in this moment? In this moment, God was there, but he was silent. He wasn't giving me any answers. I felt like everything I was learning about him was in such sharp contrast to what had happened he's supposed to be this great God. How would he just not like save only two people when I've learned that he can save the anyone, he can save any number of people. He can save a plane from crashing if he wanted to. I, I felt like he had betrayed me, you know? And, and I, I just felt like it was so unfair to those who passed away because I also, I, I just couldn't help thinking like, why not them too? You know, there was never a feeling of, why me? You know, that never, cause there was never a feeling of like, I should have, I should have gone with them or I didn't right. deserve to be here. It was never that. It was more like, if I'm here, 
why can't everyone else be here too? Why didn't we all make it? If one person did, if two people did, then 107 can, because you're God. So, I mean, I don't understand what the lesson is here, why, why this would have to happen to those parents. It was just so hard to, to understand. And because at this point now, I was seeing God as someone who permitted this kind of thing to happen, who allowed it to happen, or who just watched it happen and didn't intervene. That was a major struggle for me for a very long time post, like learning the truth, essentially. Tell me what you mean by that, learning the truth. So t- what is the truth? Like, I felt so in- ungrateful. Like, I realized, you know, all the time I've been thinking, I've been feeling, oh, woe betide me, you know, and just feeling so sorry for myself, not knowing that, like, I was actually in the better position, believe it or not. Like, ironically, this was actually the better scenario than what had actually happened. That was, that shifted my entire world because as far as I was concerned, up, up until that point, this was the worst thing I could possibly happen to a person, what had happened to me. Knowing that it was between this and death, it grounded me severely. And I think I needed that at that point because my perspective on on my survival was starting to affect like my healing. For me, as I think of your healing and the difficulty of it, as difficult as South Africa is, this healing and the reckoning of the truth, you eventually head back to Nigeria. The treatment there is challenging. And one of the most difficult things to hear about is at some point, you're going to meet again, the families of all those little ones who lost their child. So there is a day that you write about where you have an opportunity of meeting all these parents and family members who have lost lost a child in that plane crash. Take us to that day of what that was like for you seeing all these families. I think for me and for them too, it was a necessary meeting because they had seen my life as this hope to grasp onto in this really dark situation. You know, their babies were gone. And rather than resent me for Mm -hmm. being alive, they were happy and hopeful and they wanted me to survive this. They, they needed me to survive this on behalf of those that they lost. And that was a, that was a pressure that no one put on me, but I just felt the need to, live well for them. And really and truly, this is like so key to what helped bring me out of that depression after learning the truth. It was finding a way to cope with what had happened, to finding a way to kind of work the situation into my life and kind of allow it to strengthen me and propel me forward rather than keep me where I was. Finding purpose in that tragedy was, was key to moving forward from it. I feel like the parents of those people who passed away, especially the 60 angels, which is what we started to call the kids, living on behalf of those kids, on behalf of those friends, for those parents, that became one very important purpose in my life. It gave me a reason to continue and to do what I could to to live this life to the fullest, to do everything, even the most mundane things excellently, approach life with an appreciation for it understanding that it's a gift that many, many lost, you know, that day. So meeting those parents that day was so vital. I could not wait to meet them because I knew that they had been supportive of me throughout my time in South Africa. They had sent my, they called my mom regularly. They sent letters, they emailed, they, they did everything they could to show their support for my life. It was just so emotional. We were crying and they were just thanking God for my life. And they just prayed that I would get better. And, you know, I had moments, you know, where I felt as my healing continued that things were just so freaking bad and so painful and so 
the itching, everything just made me want to like, just not be inside this body. And, you know, I would never wish what happened, this situation on any living soul, even an enemy. But when I met those parents, I knew that they would take this for their kid over losing their kid completely. Mm-hmm. And so that was another perspective change for me. I, to me, this might be a curse. This might be painful and, and hurtful, but, but for them, it would be the biggest blessing. And so I, I had to kind of adjust my thinking in that way too. A birthday card from Aunt Mary helped. So I'm, I'm going to read another quote from her and then you and I are going to get on another plane and come from Nigeria over to the, to the United States together. So here it is on your 17th birthday, Aunt Mary shows up. Aunt Mary had lost two children in this plane crash. And like that alone makes it almost impossible for me to read this quote. But uh, she shares the grief of the other 59 families that lost a child. And this is what she writes you. You think about families out there listening to my voice, what you may write the grief you may share, but this is what Ketchy received from Aunt Mary. This is a day that very nearly did not come, Aunt Mary says. And then she goes on, yet here we are celebrating Kichi against the odds, our miracle child. That's what she is. So I think I can speak for everyone when I say that you are living testimony of what God can do. Happy birthday, Ketchy. Happy birthday, Ketchy. So you receive this love and this hug and this encouragement from her and from the other families. You eventually continue to get your treatment now in Galveston at Shriners. Eventually, this is where you and I are going to connect through Shriners Hospital. So I'm grateful for them, for the work they do and for the work they did for you. But I'm I'm going to fast forward a little bit. Mm -hmm. You go on to school. You go on to uh, live a relatively ordinary Houston-like life. So you're you're doing your thing. (laughs) And it's ordinary. And like, and by the way, when you survive a plane crash or when you survive a fire or you've been through abuse and you're living an ordinary life, like that's yeah. pretty good right there. Yeah. So you're living an ordinary life. You're, yeah. you're living the best version of you. And then your roommate does something cruel and unusual. <laughs> <laughs> Would you tell us what your roommate did and the punishment that, uh, that unfortunately befell you? She's one of my best friends still, still, despite it all. She was actually someone that um, I met while I was in Loyola Jesuit College in Nigeria, like in boarding school. That friendship kind of maintained even post-accidents. And so this is someone that I talked to pretty frequently every, like after we reconnected after the accident, it was like almost every day. And so Wumie is someone, I mean, anyone who knows me knows I love to sing. So she would be the person who would be sending me like, whenever American Idol, you know, has auditions or The Voice, or she would be like telling me, you know, can I go sign up for one of these shows? We would talk on Skype all the time. And she, I, I don't know when I would just break out into song. And she would just, I know she was just one of those people that was just tired of hearing me sing all the time. And just wanted me to go do something with my voice. I never thought that my voice was something that would be good enough to compete with other singers on like a talent show. I just would never have put myself out there in that way. I love singing. And yes, my voice did change after the accident. It got a little better. And so it gave me more confidence, but you know, it didn't mean that I suddenly wanted to jump on stage. You know, I just, I was loving singing and sharing it with my family and my friends. She signed me up for America's Got Talent without telling me. That was basically how she got me on their radar. When they finally called me months after she told me she did this, It was a surreal moment because the woman's name was Destiny and she was a talent scout for AGT and she said she saw my application. It was so crazy because it was like, what are the chances that would actually happen? I had no plans in this in my life. I was in school. I was getting my MBA. Like my path was business. Like I was not thinking in any way 
of using singing that was a passion and a, ha- a hobby to become like a career. Mm. But AGT changed all that. The response that I got from being on that show was overwhelming, honestly. And it's all because one of my best friends literally took a chance on me and pushed me forward in a way that I never would have pushed myself, ever. Most of the starlets who walk on stage walk on the stage like these judges are going to be so lucky to hear me sing. (laughs) You walk out holding that microphone humbly in a dress, bearing your scars, bearing your soul, head a little bowed awkwardly. Like this is not you trotting on stage in front of Simon and the others. This is you almost like, what have I done done? as you are behind set? And they have have now announced that it's your turn to go on stage. Mm -hmm. What are you thinking? What are you thinking as you take that first step, second step, third step on the stage? At that point, it's like autopilot because it's like people are telling you where to be, where to go and how long to wait. Okay, is your cue, go on. You know, there's cameras everywhere. There's people rushing around. So it's very professional feeling, you know, and you get caught up in that feeling of like all the hustle and bustle. The moment they say step out and I did step out, it was like, holy crap. (laughs) Why would I do this to myself? (laughs) Why would I choose to do this? To hear people I don't know tell me if they think my voice is good or not. Why would I do that to myself voluntarily? And I remember I stepped on that X and I looked out at those judges. For, that was the first, because the first time you see them is that moment when you step out on the X. I don't identify as shy, you know, but in that moment, I just felt so vulnerable and scared, very nervous, very unlike myself. Honestly, considering I am grateful how things went because I just, I, it could have gone any other way, really. I would not have been surprised. Just remembering that feeling of finishing the song and seeing everyone clapping and hearing the judges give me their yes it was like wow like I'm actually going to be here again like this is actually continuing and so it's, it's a funny feeling because it's like on the one hand you're happy you move forward but on the other hand it's like damn it I have to do this over again I have to prove myself at, like another time to these people that I can sing yes. it was it was just so nerve-wracking throughout but also very exciting very fun and of course gave me a huge confidence boost when it came to my voice. So what song did you pick? I picked a song called Thinking Out Loud. It was one of my favorite songs to sing during that time too. So when your legs, when your legs don't work like they used to before and I can't sweep you off of your feet Will your mouth still remember the taste of my love? Will your eyes still smile from your cheeks? Darling, I will be loving you till we're 17. Honey, my heart could still fall as hard at 23.
sing this in front of those judgmental, beautiful American Titans <laughs> judges. You know, you got this woman who admits in front of them right before you started singing that you survived a plane crash, that only one other person survived. So they're already blown away by you, but they're not blown away by your voice yet. Then you sing, then they stand, and then thousands behind them stand. And it's an incredible moment that you, my friend, are part of. I'm going to read to you just two lines that you would have heard that night. You probably don't remember, but these are lines that the judges shared back. Howie says this, we feel lucky to have you here. Like they were the ones that felt lucky. Most contestants feel lucky to be there, but how he felt lucky to have you there. And then Simon, who is renowned for being critical of the, uh, of the contestants. Here's what Simon says. You deserve your place here tonight, not just based on your story, but actually based on your talent. That's the absolute truth. You deserve to be here. When you hear this and the applause and you witness people wiping their own tears, what, what's happening within you and your heart? I, you know, these are people who owe me nothing. They don't know me from anywhere. You know, they're not my family. They're not my friends. So to have complete strangers say this to me, people who don't have any reason to be nice to me or to, to tell me, you know, things that I want to hear for my benefit. It was extremely validating. No one there was there to do me any favors. You know, they're there to do a job, to pick the people that they felt were worthy to move forward, you know, to pick the people that they felt would be great on TV, great inspiration, great talent. To think that out of thousands, they would include me in that group was extremely humbling. (laughs) When I watch you perform, I, I cry every time. I like right before we recorded, I walked down the hallway, spoke to my team, and I'm like, I'm the biggest baby, dude. I have to get a new job. Like, I, I, I cried reading your book. I cried listening to your interviews. I cry every time I see you on America's Got Talent. I cry because I watch these cynical judges who've seen it all and they're ready to judge again. That's their job, it's their job title. And they can't help themselves but be moved by greatness in front of them. And the greatness is not just your voice, it's your heart. And I think that's it's both that stir them. And it stirs me every single time you go through the second performance and the third, you become a finalist. You do brilliantly. But my question right now is not about the success you achieved because of it, but how it transformed you individually. How did America's got talent change your life? I don't mean the doors open up, opened up. Mm. How did it change you from the inside out? It was an experience that made me get more personal and in touch with my voice it made me regard it as something more than a hobby for the first time in my entire life. You know, I had had people that, that saw value in this aspect of me that so far up until that point had been kept so private and enjoyed in secret. Coming on that show and doing this was me being extremely vulnerable in a way I'd never been in my life. One might argue that every day I step outside and I choose to just live my life despite my looks, despite what I've been through, that that in itself is, you know, something to praise or something to admire. But, you know, for me, I was just living my life. It, it's never been anything spectacular to me, you know, even though I know that it might represent that, that to other people, which I appreciate. When it comes to my parents, I have no choice. This is just how it's going to, like how I am is how I am. You have to take it or leave it. It's just how it is. I can't control that, but I can control who I share my voice with. I can control what I do with it. 
to do this so publicly was extremely vulnerable for me. It was very mm-hmm. it was a step into waters I had never navigated. Having that kind of re- re- like reception from people after sharing this very private part of myself and my life and my passion with the world was so relieving and very validating. It made me feel for the first time that music did not have to stay just a hobby. Maybe there's something I can do with it. Maybe I can share it in in a way that other people can enjoy it. Maybe there's actually something to enjoy in in my sound, in my voice, in my music. Mm. And I feel like that changed me in the sense that it kind of bolstered my self-assurance, I guess. You know, it kind of made me more sure of myself. Encouraged me to not be so afraid to step outside my comfort zone. So it gave me this new perspective on how to approach scary things, you know, things I would typically not even give a second thought, things that would typically make me scared and nervous, do it scared, you know, do it scared, do it afraid, because the fear is going to be there every, anyway, you know, for, it was kind of like, if, if the fear is there regardless, then you might as well do it while you're scared, you know, then, then just not do it at all. I chose to be afraid while doing the thing, instead of being afraid of doing the thing. And I think that that's like the main thing that I learned from AGT. It, it gave me this new approach to, to scary things. Although you're terrified of the ride, you stand in line, you board, you put the belt yeah. on, you put your hands up and you yeah. say, come on, man, let's go. This yeah. thing is, this thing is leaving the station. Leaving the well, station. It's, it's led to you not only discovering your voice, but discovering uh, not only the ability to use your voice in singing, but in writing. You wrote a beautiful book that I have read, that I've devoured, that I love and endorse called More Than My Scars. Oh. I love the title. I think I like the subtitle even more, though. Subtitle is The Power of Perseverance, Unrelenting Faith, and Deciding What Defines You. So catchy. Let's just talk about those three as we get ready to wrap up our conversation together. The power of perseverance. Talk about the power of perseverance. Perseverance is the motto of my life. That's the story of our lives, you know, as burn survivors. That is a trait. That is a a fruit of the spirit that we have to embody because burn recovery journey is nothing if not slow and painful, but mainly very slow, very gradual. You know, when the body is healing, you cannot rush it. I had to learn that trait over and over and over, understanding that a lot of things that are worth having cannot come overnight. There's a lot of delayed gratification too when it comes to burns. You know, you do a surgery today, you don't know how it's going to actually be hundred like when you're hundred percent healed from it, you you have to be there before you know what to expect from how it's going to heal. There's a lot of endurance when it comes to being a burn survivor, being a trauma survivor. Perseverance, you know, it teaches you that even if things aren't going your way yet, it's okay. You know, keep at it. It it still might. And if you stop now, you'll never know. You can't stop in the middle of it when things are bad because that's the only memory you're going to have for yourself. The the harder things are. And the longer that hard moment lasts, I become more determined to see it through because mm-hmm. at this point, I feel like I deserve to see it. I deserve to see the light at the end of this tunnel. I've suffered long enough in this place. You also learned a little bit about unrelenting faith. Talk about the power of unrelenting faith. That is quite literally the foundation of my life as I, as I know it. That pivotal moment for me when I, I stopped seeing God as this judgy character and started seeing him as a father who cares and a place to run to when things are hard. 
not the one who causes grief, but the one to go to when grief happens. Mm. That that change, that switch in, in perspective of him served me greatly because it gave me access to a peace and a comfort that no medication could give me and no human being could give me. The closest was my mom, maybe, but even she drew her strength from someone else, you know, from an infinite source, which is who I see God as. So I think my faith was kind of like the underlying current, like throughout every phase of my life. Without that, like found that base, I don't know that I would be the catchy you're seeing here today. Just having a place that is not like human or human built that I can run to infinitely, an infinite amount of times to refresh, to kind of um, revive myself if I'm feeling down, to give me that push I need to continue when things are hard. That is what God is for me. I think that that's what unrelenting faith means for me. It doesn't mean that you're a perfect Christian or that you're a perfect you know, um, believer. It doesn't mean that the walk is always easy or that once you become a Christian, life gets easy. On the contrary, it, it actually gets harder in my opinion because now the world is trying to prove to you that you're wrong about this belief. And for me, I feel like unrelenting faith is just that understanding that no matter how many times you fall off the wagon, whenever you come back, he's always going to come, like he's always going to welcome you back with open arms and you can continue your journey with him. It's a lifelong journey. You never reach the fullness of like being the perfect Christian. There's no such thing. You just walk that path throughout your life. And every day is a little better. Some days you fall behind, then you pick up and you continue. And that to me is what unrelenting faith is. And finally, Ketchy, the power, and I love this one, the power of deciding what defines you. This is a phrase that gave birth to my mantra, which is that I am more than my scars. My scars do not define me. Deciding what defines you. We live in a world that is extremely judgmental, has always been. There, it has the way that it likes things to be done. And people's opinions change all the time when it comes to what the perfect body is, what the perfect appearance is, what's beautiful and what's not. And oftentimes, especially with the prevalence of social media, we get swept away by the world's definition of all these things. And um, if you let it, if you allow this world, it will, it will tell you how to feel about yourself. It will tell you how to feel about your body. It will tell you how to feel about the clothes that you wear, the places that you go to, things you enjoy. It, it will tell you what you should be doing, what you should not be doing, according to it. And it's interesting because even though the world changes the standards all the time, people are still so influenced by it, every single change. But I was now in a position where I could not afford to ever let that happen to me. If I thought like, you know, in the past that it sucked that the world was like that, now it became even more crucial that I look so, now that I look so different to make sure that the world does not tell me how to feel about me. I may not be able to control what happened, how it happened. I can't stop a plane from crashing. I can't stop many things that happen in life, but I can control how I react to those things. And I can control what I take out of those experiences. And for me, I wanted to take out of this experience, the fact that my scars will not be the only thing that defines me. It will always be a part of me. I mean, you see me is the first thing you see, but there's more to me than that. And I also play a role in showing that more to people when they meet me. I want them to see beyond my scars the way, and, and see me how I see me. I think that's what that means for me. I chose to not allow my scars to be my one defining trait. I chose to live life in a way that would make it clear that there are many parts of me that matter, not just how I look. I think that that's something that gives me a lot of power 
and allows me to be myself really in any circumstance as much as possible be as authentic as possible in every space I find myself in like if you read this book if you don't get anything else at least get that the fact that like don't allow yourself to be subject to the world's changing standard don't allow the world to tell you how to feel about you take back the control by accepting everything about yourself flaws and all and once you do that you take the world's power away from telling you how to feel about those things including the flaws so that's something that I hope people get from my story at least catchy (laughs) but but before the audience at home uh, all around the world stands up and applauds I'm going to guide you through the live inspired seven questions these are questions that tether all of our great guests together but none who decide to be truly great more beautifully than you, my friend. So here we go. Seven questions. Number one is this. What has been the most influential or best or inspiring book you've ever read? The Body Keeps the Score, I think. Yeah, Yeah, that is a very powerful book about trauma, how it affects the body and the mind, and essentially how you decides to come out of trauma, what you decide to take out of a traumatic experience, the things that you can't control, the things that you can't control. And it it just kind of gives you this this feeling of relatability, which is something that I really try to to push in my book as well. Because I feel like through that book, I realized that a lot of us are living very similar lives. You know, when it comes to traumatic experiences, they're not always all going to be dramatic as a plane crash. Scars are not always going to be as obvious as mine. But I read that book and I, I learned something that I already believed, which is the fact that we all have scars and like people have invisible scars that oftentimes can have even more long lasting effects than the physical ones. Because physical ones, you can, you can do surgery, you can fix yourself physically. When you've been scarred emotionally, it's, it's harder to get rid of that, I think. What's one positive characteristic or one positive trait that you possessed as a little girl growing up, an only child, this is before your sister shows up on the scene, that you wish you exhibited as brilliantly today? Like blind trust, really. That, you know, the, the blind and complete trust as I had in my parents growing up as a kid, I, I wish I could apply that to my life right now when it comes to God. I wish that that was something that I could, re- I could have retained and used as something to strengthen my faith and to keep it can, more consistent like than it is right now. Yes, thank you. I think that would help us all, but I think you have a lot of trust and it's so inspiring and encouraging to sit next to you. So question number three is, if your home caught fire, your apartment, your condo, and all living things are out and you had an opportunity to run inside and grab one item that mattered to you, what's the one thing you come racing back outside with? Oh God, I, I have to be honest, probably my cell phone probably my cell phone or my laptop, something, you know what, most likely my laptop, I'm not even this one I'm using right now, but my, my older one, because that one has literally my life inside. It's just, yeah. there's so much stuff in there that I just cannot afford to lose. And it's not, so it's, it's less about the laptop and more about its content. Like if that's gone, it's gone forever. And I can never recover that stuff. So and I don't want to lose those things. A lot of it is pictures from just chronological pictures from the accident to now. Those are things that kind of give me perspective time and time again, different parts of my life, different phases. I go back and I, I look back at moments where I thought things would never be better. And I think about where I am today. Sometimes we need 
literal reminders of the fact that we are currently living in prayers that we prayed in the past. So with the laptop in hand, if you if you could sit on a bench on a perfect day and have a long conversation with anyone living or deceased, who would you want to be next to? My grandpa, maybe, I think. He passed away two years ago, but I never got to talk to him about, about the plane crash, mm-hmm. about, you know, his... Because he played a very significant role in, in encouraging the family to trust that I was still alive when no one had been confirmed to be alive. He was just so sure. This is only something I've ever had the chance to hear from my family members who were there that day and who all knew you know, about how he just stepped in and encouraged everyone with his faith and was just so sure that I was alive. And I never got a chance to ask him his thoughts on that. Why? he felt so strongly, did God tell him? Did Like what gave him that assurance, you know? And I missed my chance to tell him because after we moved to America, I, I really only ever saw my, my grandparents after I came back to Nigeria for like holidays, so, which, is, which was very rare. So every time I saw him, you know, I just want to hug him and I'm happy to see him. I just forget to actually have these like meaningful conversations. And then before I knew it, he was just gone. The grandfather's next to you. The laptop's in your hand. And my next question is, what's the best advice he or you wrote about your grandmother, she or anyone else in your life has ever given you? So the best advice catchy you've ever received is? This was advice from my mother. And the advice that she gave me was, it was more of like a, a statement that changed my perspective on life. This was right after the accident happened. And she was the one that told me bad things happen to both good and bad people, Ketchy. Being a Christian does not exempt you from suffering, from going through life like everyone else. But what it does is it gives you a place to go to, a place to run to when things do happen, when bad things, when traumatic things do happen. That is what God can represent for you if, if you wish it, if you allow him. What, what, what advice would you offer to yourself at age 20? So if you could go back a time a few years and whisper a little bit of advice to a younger version of yourself, what would you say? I would tell her, I would tell her to stop going through the motions and take her life more seriously, take her life into her own hands and, and move forward with actual direction. Because I feel like at that time, I was just so focused on living a normal life, but I never really got a chance to define what I wanted that life to be. I didn't get it. I never took the time to actually think about like my future just because I had grown so used to living day to day. Uh, it felt like the, it was just a matter of just surviving every day, living every day, doing what I can that day. But I never thought about, I never gave myself a chance to think down the line, should I have a particular direction that I'm consciously, you know, walking, walking towards. I didn't have that at that age. And I feel like if I had many things would have happened way earlier than they did. Many things would have maybe not happened also that I wish didn't happen. I feel like she was 20 year old catcher was just a little bit listless, you know, just going through the motions. And I, I would love to have just told her like, listen, you need to get direction. Like now start working on that now so that you're not feeling like you're falling behind later on. So, yeah. Catchy Akwuchi. My friend, it has been said that all great people, and I'm with one right now, all great people can have their lives summed up in one sentence. What would you like yours to read? 
One sentence. Yes. Ketchy was a person who believed in being her authentic self in any space that she found herself in. And she encouraged people through her own life to do the same. Mm. Ketchy, you are radically authentic. I appreciate you recognizing that you are far more than your scars. Thank you for reminding us of the power of perseverance and unrelenting faith and deciding what to find you. You've decided well, my friend. There's just so much to catchy story that I'm not even sure where to begin. We could talk about the upbringing in Nigeria. We could talk about her family. We could talk about her faith. We could talk about the tragedy of being in a plane crash the profound tragedy of losing 60 classmates, the difficulty of spending months in recovery without the ability to use your voice, the ability ultimately to find the power of voice, taking the hand of a classmate who passed away and eventually able to share that story with her grieving mom and the healing that brought to her. On and on and on and on, there's stories within catchy stories that I, I'm so deeply moved by and inspired by. And yet I think, the angle I'd like to take as we get ready to live this message going forward is the ability of not being defined by how others see us. We have this gift of life. We have the gift of life. And so frequently we're worried about how others see our hair or our face or our hands or our scars. And the incredible thing about Ketchy is she's not. She is not defined by those scars. And my friends, neither should you be. Neither should you be. If you want to learn more about a story that is somewhat similar to this and inspiring like this, let me encourage you to check out the Live Inspired podcast with our guest, Austin Hatch. In a span of only eight years, Austin survived not just one plane crash, but two plane crashes. Those plane crashes claimed the lives of the five people closest to him. And the second plane crash left him with brain damage and the doctors feared he would never walk again. And yet, you know the miracle's coming. Here it is. Austin continued to not only defy the odds, but to stand up, to move forward, and to directly drive into life. He became a Division I basketball player for the University of Michigan. You can hear my conversation with Austin by visiting us online at johnolearyinspires.com. Or clicking over to episode 312 as part of the Live Inspired podcast. My friends, if you enjoyed this episode as much as I enjoyed sharing it with you, let me encourage you to do three things. Number one, subscribe. Subscribe to this episode. I think you will love listening to these podcasts as they arrive weekly. So do subscribe. Secondly, share it with your friends. Let your friends who you work with or worship with or do life with know that you are part of the Live Inspired community and they should be too. So let them know that you subscribe to this podcast. And the third and really my favorite, live it. Live this message. Live this message of miracles. Live this message of faith. Live this message of love. Live this message of not being defined by your scars. You were made for something mighty, my friends. So I want to thank you for being part of our family and remind you that in spite of the headwind and the challenges we all face, the foundation is firm and better days are yet to come. So for this time and until next time, my name is John O'Leary. Today's your day. Live inspired.
Well, Keeley Company's culture sets them apart, and their people live out the unique culture every single day. Perhaps it's best seen through their philanthropic foundation called Keeley Cares. It was built on a passion for giving of their time, their talent, and their treasure to help improve the communities in which they live and where they work. We're so excited that they were named one of the top corporate philanthropists by the St. Louis Business Journal for 2021. You can learn more about Keeley Cares by visiting them online at keeleycompanies.com.